Um, so, uh, I don't know if you guys know this, but there is uh, something called, every year, there's something called the Golden Trailer Awards. And these are actually awards that are the, the partner to the Oscars, you know, the annual movie awards. There's actually awards for trailers, for movies, because trailers in and, in and of themselves are an art form. They're crafted very, very intentionally. They have to do very, very specific things. They have to get people excited to watch a movie, but they actually have to keep, keep people also engaged to watch the trailer. And so every year, there's awards that come out that say, hey, this is the best trailer of the year. I think a, a couple, a couple. I mean, like last year, you know, Deadpool, I think, had a nominated trailer. Uh, these are really, really well-known movies. By the way, there's something called the Golden Fleece Award. And I don't know if you know what that award is, but I'm gonna show you a trailer and then I will tell you what the Golden Fleece Award because this movie won the Golden Fleece Award. Let's just watch part of this. Dad? Yeah? Why'd we move out here? Beautiful house, most trails. What else could we ask for? I miss mom. Me too. Cool, huh? Loser. <laughs> Give it back. You want it? Come get it. <laughs> what you gonna do about it? No! I want this thing settled, and I mean now. Is that the father and I go, girl, you the father? You think we're gonna be disrespected? Can you go over there and do some things? Mess with their heads like you do everyone else. Scare them. Okay, that's probably enough. Anybody know what this movie is? It's called Homefront, okay? Uh, the Golden Fleece, this won the Golden Fleece Award. The Golden Fleece Award is the award for the best trailer of the worst movie. So if you watch the trailer, like your man, it's, am it's amazing. You know, Jason Statham eventually does what Jason Statham does, which is all the kung fu stuff. And, and James Franco is the bad guy and he's just brilliantly bad. But the movie kind of flopped. But every year they give an award to say, hey, this is the best trailer of the movie that just didn't do very, very well. I wanna show you one other trailer of a movie that actually did do pretty well, and it's actually a pretty good trailer. So, so watch this. Hi, how can I help you today? Hi, I can't seem to leave a wink for someone. Okay, uh, I'm looking at your profile. You left a lot of this stuff blank. Well, I haven't really been anywhere noteworthy or mentionable. Have you, have you done anything noteworthy, mentionable? We have ahead of us the privilege of publishing the very last issue of Life magazine. Jumping up and down the floor. And for the final issue, we just received negative 25 from Sean O'Connell for the cover. It's 25. It's not there. I know. Look what I found! What's that? Travel journal dad gave me. The sun was an okay guy. Hey! They had a hey! How was your weekend? I had an awesome weekend. The ice, Jace. She moves like a woman. I'd like to climb your hair. Oh, wow. What is it you call it when he goes into one of his little places? Oh, zoned out. You do that now and then. What's the matter? I lost a picture of it. I like mysteries. You shouldn't go. 
crack the case. You were Sean's partner. You finish his work. keep this short. I have to make oxygen choices. Anybody ever, anybody seen that movie? Secret Life of Walter Mitty. Uh, that's one of my family's favorite uh, movies. That this Christmas, obviously, it's a couple years old, so it's not coming out this Christmas. That's an example of a great work of art that is a trailer. I mean, the trailer in and of itself kind of gets my blood uh, pumping a little bit, and the movie was pretty well received as well. Here's the deal, here's why we talk, we're talking about trailers today, is because what a trailer does is it gives you a taste for what the entire work is about, does it not? I mean, the, the trailer should give you a flavor for what you're getting into. And I wanna suggest to you that as we get into this series called Encounter over on Exodus 3 and 4, that Exodus 3 and 4 are like a trailer. It's like a trailer for the story of God. Here's the way I would say it. It serves as a microcosm or a trailer for the grander story of God, bringing together these themes of who God is, who we are, and what he's up to in the world. That's what sort of grabbed my attention a year ago when I was reading Exodus 3 and 4, that I was like, oh my gosh, there's this little part of God that shows up in this short little passage, and you can see that play itself out in the rest of the Bible. Then there's this, and there's that, and then there's things, it says things about us. And it says things about how God interacts with us. So Exodus 3 and 4 are a trailer for the story of God. And to the degree that we can just look at these words over the next few weeks, I think we can find some really, really cool stories uh, and cool attributes about God. And um, when I've used this before with you guys, but when you're studying the Bible, there are some really, really basic questions that you can bring to the text that can start you thinking and learning about the Bible and about God. And here they are. These are questions that I use all the time. Whenever you're looking at the text, you ask, what does this text say about God? And you just extrapolate that and wrestle with it. And then you ask the question, what does this text say about us, about me as a human being? And then last question, simple question, what does the text say about the relationship between God and myself? And that's essentially the questions that we're going to be bringing to Exodus 3 and 4 every week. What does it say about God? What does it say about us? What does it say about the relationship? Um, to get into this, we're just going to start with the text. We're going to start today with just the first four verses. So uh, Exodus 3 is right towards the beginning of the Bible, just, I don't know, a couple dozen pages in. Uh, and, and 3, 1 through 4 reads this way. 
Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And Moses led the flock to the far side of the wilderness, and he came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, saying, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. So that's where we're going to start today with just those four verses, because those four verses, I, I think, say something really, really cool about God. And, and to, to give you a little bit of context, like where we're at in the story, because some of you guys might know who Moses is, some of you guys might not. Uh, let me just tell you, we're in the third chapter of Exodus. Moses appears in the book of Exodus for the first time as a character. And essentially, here's his story so far by chapter three. He is a Hebrew. He is a Jew. He's born... Uh, he is almost um, killed by Pharaoh, uh, the, the, the powers that be, but he's rescued. He's rescued by a member of Pharaoh's household, and he grows up in Pharaoh's household as a prince of Egypt. You, you guys might have seen the movie. Literally, Moses grows up with the privileges and the expectations and the character of a royal member of the household. But in the story, he's still a Hebrew. And in the story uh, of God, he sees an Egyptian uh, beating on a Jew, beating on a fellow Jew, beating on a Hebrew, and Moses acts. He comes to the guy's defense, and he actually kills the Egyptian. And, uh, you know, as a lot of us do when you do something wrong, particularly a crime of this nature, Moses heads for the hills. And that's how he ends up in Midian. So he goes, essentially, from a member of Pharaoh's own household, privilege, royalty, comfort, and then he finds himself in the wilderness tending a flock for his father-in-law. Uh, so a word about now the wilderness. It says that's where Moses ends up. A word about, a word about the wilderness in the Bible. Um, Moses finds himself essentially way, way, way away from everything he'd ever known. Um, the Bible uses, a very biblical term for that is exile. Exile is essentially the idea of like, hey, I've belonged over here as a member of Pharaoh's household, but I find myself not where I expected to be. I am not in a place of comfort. I am away from the privilege. I'm away from the comfort. I'm away from the honor of who I am. So it's, uh, it's sort of an in-between place. It's an uncomfortable place. It's a place where Moses is essentially going, man, how did I get here? How did I end up in this space? This is not what I had planned for my life. I'm, I'm sure that he was maybe happy. I don't know that he came to the defense of his fellow Hebrew, but essentially there has to be a sense of like, man, I thought my life was on this trajectory. Something happened and now I'm in another space. Anybody ever been that place in their life? You know, exile is a very familiar space for me. Those last two phrases, what am I doing here? 
this is not what I had planned. Have you ever had that moment where you're like, ask yourself that question? How did I get into this place? So we have Moses and we have the wilderness. And then the last thing I want to kind of unpack is, is what's going on with this bush. Now, if you were a person in the ancient world, it would be very common for you to ascribe religious and spiritual power to trees, trees. In the ancient world, trees were places of spiritual power. And in a way, it's kind of easy to understand. Like if you just look at some pictures of, of like old growth forests, these mammoth size trees that just kind of inspire awe. That's a sycamore tree. And, and over time, in the, in the very, very early stories of humanity, people would look at this and they're like, man, I mean, golly, anybody ever seen that up close? A baobab tree up close? I mean, look at the scale of that. And so in this context that Moses is operating in, People saw trees as places of spiritual power and presence, right? But guess what? The God that seeks Moses out, the God that we sing about this morning that seeks us out, does he show up in a tree? No. Where does he show up? In a shrub, in a bush. And there's significance to this, I think. In fact, there's an ancient Jewish story of somebody who comes to a rabbi and they say, hey, uh, why does your God not show up in these powerful trees? Why does your God not appear to be as powerful as everybody else's? And the rabbi said, he shows up in the bush, in the lowly bush, to show that there's no place that's so low that our God cannot be. You know, see, it would be easy and it would be sort of a no-brainer for Moses to be out in the wilderness and to encounter like a sycamore tree or some kind of powerful place that everybody expects. Oh, that's where that God would be. But he's wandering around and he actually sees a bush. I don't know how tall the bush was, but it's certainly not a tree. And so, as we begin to bring this, build this picture of what's going on in this encounter, there's a couple things that we can say, essentially, that what the bush and the wilderness, the place of exile and the place of almost humility, you actually say, what? This God is in places that he should not be. Because I think we're used to thinking that God is like, well, God shows up in the places he should be, like in, in a church, or he shows up like in, in the places of power and in the places of comfort. But Moses encounters him in the wilderness and not in a tree, but in a bush. So there's something about this God that he likes to show up where he's not expected. And over my life, what I've begun to interpret this and, and live this out as is, look, maybe, just maybe, this God this means that this God can be anywhere. That maybe if he shows up in exile, in deserts, in drought, in dry places, in places where a guy has murdered somebody and run away, and it's not in the trees and in the powerful and in the oh, mighty places, that maybe, not just that he can be anywhere, but maybe that he's just assumed that he's everywhere. 
if there's no place off limits to this God. Uh, let me show you this picture. What, anybody, know, anybody recognize this picture from a couple years ago? What's it? What is it? It's the dress. That's everybody knows that. Anybody know this phenomenon? Uh, I think a couple years ago, 10 million tweets about this dress. And the big debate is what? About the color. Is it blue and black or white and gold? I researched this. It's blue and black. But those two pictures were heavily debated. Oh my gosh, it was on all kinds of TV shows, Oprah, The View, man, people were going crazy about this, debating uh, what, how could that dress be if you people saw it as blue and black? They're like, how could you say it's white and gold? Some people saw it as white and gold, said, how can anybody see it as blue and black? And yet, we find out eventually that the dress is, when you look at it, it's blue and black. Let me show you a video that maybe you've seen before. There's a study that a guy did, uh, and he, he set this video up, and he, he says, uh, watch this video and count how many times the people with the basketball pass the ball to each other. And so he just rolled this video, and he did this as a, as a psych, psycho, psychological experiment, experiment with some students, I think. And so they're counting. And maybe you've seen this. So people are counting. I don't know if you're counting now. I did not count. I gave up. then this thing happens. <laughs> All right. Did you know that um, when, they, when they asked the people, how many people saw the gorilla? 50% of the people watching the video didn't see it because they were watching, they were doing what they were told to do. They were watching the people pass the basketball. All right. Let me show you one other thing. Uh, this is an exercise in light. So there's, there's two images, and, and this is just kind of not really an unveiling or anything, but this a neuroscientist, he said, look at the picture on the left, and he sets this up, and he said, what's the image on the center square? What color are those two tiles? And obviously, if you look at the left, you say one on top is what color? And the one on the, the, the you know, facing is orange, right? But it's not. When you actually like just kind of put them against each other, they're both brown. And yet our brains, when they show that, we go, no, there is no way that those two tiles are the same color. Our brains are set up to make judgments and decisions about our environment. It's called perception. Here's another little interesting uh, exercise that I've seen done before. Uh, anybody can read this phrase. Read this phrase. Welcome to E3, where faith, authenticity, and emerging culture meet. We blow past the idea that that's actually uh, uh, an, an amazing phenomenon, but it really is, that our brains do not get hung up on those missing letters. I mean, they do a little bit if you had to read a whole paragraph like that, but our brains fill in gaps. So what I'm talking about and how this applies to this bush situation, this shrub situation, is that our brains make decisions about our world based on perception. And this is really, really critical when you start to figure out where does God show up in our lives? Perception about light. Oh, the dress is blue and black or the dress is white and gold. Well, it depends on kind of what the light is doing. 
or that that tile is, is brown and orange. I know that tile is brown, brown and orange. Oh, until something changes and you go, oh my gosh, it's brown. If you're trained to, to not look for the gorilla, then when the gorilla shows up, you might miss him. And I think what I'm trying to get at is that a lot of, our, a lot of us live our lives based on the uh, assumption that, like, essentially to kind of cut to the end of the, the, the story, that you know, bushes don't burn. And so here's the way this might play out, at least uh, in, in a grand scheme of things, like that God lives, these are assumptions that we make. God lives in church on Sundays. Sometimes a lot of churches didn't even show up there, but that's another story. God lives in church buildings and only on Sundays. Maybe it's also this. Maybe the assumption is this. The sacred and the holy is reserved for special times, places, and only special people. Usually it's like, not me. God can speak to everybody else, but not me. Or maybe it's this assumption that exile always equals punishment and desertion. This is a big one. So if you find yourself in a place where you ask those questions like exile, how did I get here? It's really easy to let your mind go to the next thing. Oh, I'm being punished. And therefore, God does not like me, love me, and won't speak to me. The desert is a place of drought and only drought and only death. Because that's not what the bush says. Because Moses is in the desert and he is in exile. And in the place that, that he has run to because he's murdered somebody and in the place where uh, life struggles to exist, actually right there is when God shows up. And the last thing, of course, is that bushes don't burn. I don't know the last time you were wandering around the forest. But in my experience, bushes don't burn. They kind of stay bush-like. And if that's all you ever think about the world, then I think that's the world you'll live in. I think that's what perception shows us. If you only train yourself to look at that and, 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 and that reality that we just saw, and that's the equivalent of the, the folks passing the basketball back and forth, you won't ever see the gorilla walk out into the middle of it. Maybe you will, maybe you won't. Maybe, so maybe it looks like this in your world. My job, my job is just a job. I'm, you know, I'm so grateful that God shows up at E3 on Sundays because, boy, when I walk in on Monday, ah, God don't show up there. Or maybe uh, for some of us, it might be, hey, my classroom. My classroom is just a classroom. It's not a place where God shows up. Maybe in some of your classrooms, it's the weeping and gnashing of teeth. I don't know, especially if you're a teacher. Uh, what, maybe this, God doesn't call out to people like me because I'm not one of those good churchy people. But then you remind yourself, well, what's Moses' situation? And who's, who's Moses at this point in his life? He's a murderer who ran away. And you could argue, I like exploring this, like he has run away from the identity. He's a prince, but he's tending sheep. So he's fleed his core identity in a way. Uh, next thing, hey, a gig is just a gig. I'm a musician, or I've been a musician. So, hey, if I'm in a club on a Friday night, God doesn't show up in clubs on Friday nights. Surely he doesn't show up in a bar on a Friday night. 
or does he? Or does this God just kind of say, hey, you know what? Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Maybe it's this. Uh, <laughs> five o'clock traffic is just a place of frustration and waiting. Sorry, I'm preaching to myself, man. I don't like traffic. But I know I've had enough conversations that like, well, surely God does not show up in five o'clock traffic. What is this? What would be on this list for you? What is the place that you say, surely God will not show up here? Because I think what the story of God and, the, and, the, and the, the burning bush, the burning shrub is to say, look, if you haven't gotten it yet, this God shows up anywhere. This God shows up anywhere and everywhere. There's no place that's off limit from his presence. A um, couple of stories in the Bible. A guy named Jacob who has a really checkered past. Uh, he's an interesting character in the book of Genesis. He has a dream. Uh, he is away from anything sacred or special. His character is not that great. And he wakes up from this dream and this encounter with God. And he says, oh man, surely God was in this place. And I was not aware of it. Surely God was in this place. And I was not aware of it. That's probably the same thing Moses says eventually. Jesus says it this way. He says, you know what? Guess what? My father is always working. And so am I. God does not take a break. It's not like Sunday is God's big work day and then he takes off Monday morning. When you walk into your job on Monday, you are not. Maybe it feels like exile to you. But guess where God shows up? In exile. In the places that don't look they have, like they have any life in them. And I think what we do is our perception gets the better of us and we say, you know what, there's an area of my life, maybe it's a job, maybe it's a classroom, maybe it's a circumstance. This is a space that God will never show up. And you know what happens to our perception? That's what we see. We see that God doesn't show up because we've walled him off. This is the, re the reality that I live in and I've come to accept and try to live out uh, is essentially this. It's another sort of long statement. I just wrote this out for myself. That we live in a God-bathed world. It's drenched with his presence. We live in a God-bathed world. He's everywhere and he's always calling. He's not bound by special places, by special times or surely special people because I am not special. And so we have a constant and ongoing opportunity to see and respond to his invitation. All it takes is curiosity, openness, and a desire to wake up and see something different. This is really, really present in this really small way in the text. Let me show you uh, just these two verses again. Moses thought... This is what the text, say in verse, text say, says in verse three. Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight. Now, hold that slide there. I don't think that bushes in and of themselves are strange sights to a shepherd. Now, a bush that's on fire, I'll grant you that. But I think this openness to God's presence starts when we become willing to see God in the mundane things of our lives. 
that he shows up, I dare say, in the everyday things of Moses' job. You don't think Moses ever like got up in the morning to go tend the sheep and was like, man, remember when I was a prince? I wonder what the people in Pharaoh's household are doing right now. I'm sure he had moments where he's like, man, I don't want to get up and do this. I'm a prince. But he gets up and he does it. And then in the everyday thing of his life, all of a sudden, bam, there's this thing. And here's the key word. What's he say? He says, I will go over and see. Right? Because he could have said, oh, cool, uh, burning bush. Man, I got to tell somebody. Let me Snapchat that. People are not going to believe this. And here's where it gets even cooler. Because look at the next verse. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him. So when does God call? Only when Moses stops to look. Because God's kind of polite. He could clobber us over the head anytime he wanted. Maybe you've been clobbered over the head. But by and large, what God does is he says, look, here's, a, here's something special. Here's something that is in the mundane, everyday part of your life, but there's something special about it. Moses, will you see? Eric, will you see? Lori, will you see? And Moses says, I'm going to go over to it. And when God sees that Moses allows his curiosity to take hold, what happens then? Then God says, Moses, there is a dance that we play between our curiosity and God's calling. And I think when we are willing to say, I see that there might be something unique about this this moment on Monday morning or this moment in this bar on a Friday night, I will go over and see this sight. That's when we hear God call. But I think a lot of us sit and go, I hope, I hope God calls. I hope God calls today. And like there's bushes like burning all over the place. And he's like, man, I really wish God would call today. But God waits for us to say, what's this look like? And I think all we have to do is essentially open our eyes to see it. And again, I think a lot of us say, okay, I want to open my eyes and now I'm going to see the burning bush and it's going to be, no, I think it actually starts with something a lot more subtle. Like I remember uh, one time a friend of mine walking down the streets of Chicago. Person's coming walking on the streets of Chicago. People walking on the streets of Chicago is a pretty common sight. Except this person was bawling, just weeping, you know? That's kind of different. Someone weeping in public. And uh, my friend just kind of said, oh, I think this is a burning bush moment. And went up and said, I, do, you, do you just need a hug? Do you just need a hug? And that, yeah, yeah, I do. You know, and I'd like to say, oh man, they changed the course of human history. I don't know. Friend never saw that person again. 
That's just an example of, look, God calls out not in the mighty places and not clobbering us over the head. It's in our coworker. You walk into, a, walk into work one day and you see your coworker sitting like this. Maybe that's a burning bush. Hey, are you okay? Are you all right? We overhear a phone conversation. We hear overhear phone conversations all the time, but this phone conversation is filled with anxiety and fear and dread. Maybe that's a bush. You see, we live in a God-bathed world. He's calling all the time, all the time. And we're gonna get to what, what that might look like to respond to the call. But today, what was on my mind is, is just the idea of like, look, when you respond to God's call, it doesn't always have to mean that like, okay, here's, here's a laundry list of things that you need to do. Sometimes hearing God's call is just to hear your name spoken. And to know that no matter what you've done in your life, where you're at, in exile, running away, that God still calls to you. Just a normal, broken, messy person like all of us. He calls to you. He calls to me. All the time. So the life of Walter Mitty, you know, is... Uh, is uh, based on this short story by a guy named James Thurber. It's actually a really short story, right? It's, it's very, very concise. And they, they added a whole lot to the movie. And it's a wonderful movie. Uh, but essentially, you know, and I'm not going to give any great spoilers away, but it's essentially Ben Stiller's character is this guy that just lives in his imagination all the time. And he wants to do all these things. But they only exist up here. And out here, you know, you saw in the trailer, the guy's like, well, have they ever done anything noteworthy? And he's like, no, right? But in the story, he eventually makes the choice to say, you know what? I'm going to actually break out of, of just this interior world. And I'm going to engage and I'm going to respond to what I see going on around me. And it's a beautiful story of just what it means, I feel like, when we respond to the calls of God that are going on all around us. And what I want to do is um, I want to watch, I want to show you this clip from the movie of when he decides to respond to the burning bushes in his life. Just watch this. So there's, uh, I don't know if you guys caught it, there's a lot of interesting use of color in that clip, that's an, actually an allusion to another uh, pretty powerful movie from the late 90s. Anybody catch? It's got to do with reds and blues. Uh, the Matrix came out in the light, late 90s, and there's a spot, uh, there's a point where this character says, hey, do you want the red pill or do you want the blue pill? And uh, the choice depends on whether the person wants to wake up or stay asleep. And so you actually see that play out in the, the clip where... The carpet on the blue, uh, uh, the carpet is blue in the airport. The airplane is red. There's a blue car and a red car. He says, what, what car do you want? He says, I want the red car. He chooses to wake up. He chooses to wake up. And, and I don't know if you caught this too, but their, their uh, Life magazine, which is you know, what the character of Walter Mitty in the movie, that's who he works for. And Life magazine had a motto. The movie kind of changes the motto a little bit. But let me show you what the motto of Life Magazine in the movie is. It is to see the world, things dangerous to come to, to see behind walls, to draw closer, 
to find each other and to feel. That is the purpose of life. And when you choose to engage in the idea that you live in a God-bathed world where the creator of the universe is always calling out to you, that's what you experience. That's what you experience. That's what Walter Mitty wakes up to. And that's what when we turn aside and we go, what's going on over here? And God says our name. And we see things that are amazing. And we draw closer to each other and to God. And that's what we're, for, that's what we're put here to do. So the, the, the burning bush is not just a bush that happened, you know, how many thousands of years ago to Moses. It's happening to us right now. Probably in this room right now. You know, before you leave these doors, God might call to you. And all we have to do is to say, you know what? I think I'm going to turn aside and look. So, to sum up, what does this text say about God? It says that he is a calling God. Constantly. Perpetually. And he calls to all of us. Not limited by special times, by special places. What does it say about us? You know what? All it takes is curiosity and openness to wake up to a brand new reality and adventure in our lives. And to me, what it says about the relationship between God is that, yeah, God honors this curiosity and this call. Some of us wish we could just be clobbered over the head, but God sits and he says, could you just, just turn around and come, just come look. And when we take a step, he says our name and opens the doorway to amazing adventure. Amen? Let's stand for closing prayer.